so much for your giving, and I do want to give a shout out. Happy birthday to Alex, who turned 21 today. Happy birthday. Five more years, your car insurance goes down. Other than that, there's nothing left to look forward to. So happy birthday, Alex. Oh, my Lord. Well, that's kind of true. After 21, it's like I, my car insurance goes down. Then um, I think a month ago or so, I got something from the AARP. I'm like, really? I'm only 24. Come on. Plus 20. Oh, if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 25. We are in a new series. And uh, I've been stoked for this. Uh, this is the first time, other than the table, we have visited the table, I think, four or five times in 11 years. Um, this will be our second time revisiting the tabernacle. Uh, in 2012, we did a series that was kind of this overview of the tabernacle. And this time, we actually want to take it just step by step as if we are starting a walking journey into this beautiful thing that we find in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. And there is a reason why when we went through our series called Trail Leader back in September, and why we stopped where we stopped in the book of Exodus is because we were gonna continue here on March chapter, March chapter first, that I was about to say that. How Bible am I? March chapter first. Uh, it was a fourth night. Sorry, I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to get really weird here this morning. I want to say thank you to everybody who helped make the past couple days happen. Um, we were hosting for our denomination, our statewide denomination, a, uh, a women in ministry conference. So for every uh, female pastor in our district, evangelist, teacher, director, pastor's wives, um, we hosted a conference here for the past 48 hours uh, to Vicki and her team that helped with the kitchen, to, uh, to uh, Lisa and Kelly with design, decorations set up, to people that helped my wife, to everybody that were involved. Uh, thank you for blessing the ladies of our state, the Assemblies of God ladies. Uh, we had, had so many great conversations uh, with some pastor's wives and some people just talking about the church, and they couldn't say enough for the volunteers and the people that just made it a very special week. And could we give it up for the ladies of our church? I am dying to go camping right now. My son keeps saying, we just gotta get outside. We just gotta get outside. Every time we have that conversation, snow falls on the ground. So we are just dying to get outside to do a little bit of camping now. Now my definition of camping, our. Ethan and I, our, our way to camp is this. You strap everything on your back you need, you hike endless hours into the forest, and you just set up camp, and then you get up and you hike some more, and you just enjoy your time. And you just, at night, you build a fire, pop your blisters, and you just enjoy a little bit of chest next to the fire. My wife does enjoy camping, uh, but she has to have these things called bathrooms. Like, babe, the world is your bathroom. Um, just kidding. Not really. Um, it sounds so disgusting. Um, the first time we ever camped together, uh, we were actually camping in Tennessee. We uh, found a KOA and we camped and we were pregnant with Cammy at the time. So our first experience camping is she's pregnant. And it probably wasn't the best time to camp, but it was a, really a decent camping experience, except for when the tornado sirens went off and we were huddled inside the public bathroom with other campers. Uh, 
happy vacation, just hanging out in the bathroom with strangers and uh, hoping labor doesn't kick in while uh, the tornado is flying by. Um, I remember that. And then so we kind of put off camping for a long time after, not because of that experience, just because modes of life. And uh, then we went camping with friends of ours and we were given a tent to borrow. And I just remember wake up in the morning and forgetting that there is a hole at the top of the tent and leaning over that hole, I should say lowering from that hole was a spider coming down toward me early in the morning. And I'm thinking to myself, if this thing drops and falls in the tent, we've got to burn the tent and all of our stuff. So, you know, so it drops down, I find it, I, I, I did not release it for anybody that is anti-killing spiders. I believe that God told us to, to destroy all spiders, so I do. <laughs> The book of Acts, when, when, when God shows Peter all the animals, he says, rise, kill and eat. He just said squash on spiders on the way to doing that. So I'm just not a spider fan. Uh, but um, I'm just going on a Spider-Man tangent, but I'm going to have self-control. But we, you know, we, we kind of recovered from that moment, sat back and said, maybe, maybe we need to buy a tent. Maybe we need to invest in something that doesn't have holes at the top. It does not allow spiders on the inside. And, but tenting has kind of been a thing that we've done for, for a number of years. We enjoy tenting. Um, of course, Anne enjoys it near bathrooms. Uh, Ethan and I enjoy tenting where you have to find in clear spots. I love it. Just something about being out in nature and being just out, just, uh, just kind of in touch with everything around and getting away from cell phones and such until my phone dings and I realize I have service and I can tweet about wherever I'm at. It's wonderful. Um, why are we talking about tents? Because really that's what the tabernacle is and that's what the tabernacle was back in the day. It was a tent that was carefully constructed through the instructions of God. And we ended our story of Moses with Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and he leads them out and they go through the plagues, they go through the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness and God gives him the commandments, gives them the law and that was what drops us right smack in the middle of where we are at. Now the tabernacle is called a number of things. In scripture it's called just the tabernacle. Um, in the scripture it's also called the sanctuary. It's called the tent of testimony or the tent of witness. It's called the house of the God or house of the Lord. It's called the tent of congregation. It has numbers of ways it's referred to. Uh, so many times when we get the idea of calling this place the house of God, it really stems from hundreds of years ago to this moment. And that's why every year we love reminding you in January that this building is just a building. It isn't the house of God. We are the house of God. Something we emphasize over and over because sometimes we can make two big of a deal over this building. And believe me, I wanna take care of our building, but I wanna make a bigger deal of understanding that we were not given the spirit to put inside brick and mortar. The spirit of God came inside of our lives that we would be a people, not just in touch with who he is, but ready to go out and touch a world that is in need of a revelation of who God is. And so we get to the book of Exodus. Now, if you are a person who likes to study, Exodus has got three main sections and what I would say three main themes to it. Uh, the first part of Exodus is just simply the Exodus, all right? It's people that are exiting slavery. And the theme of that section is salvation. So you've got the first part, chapters 1 through 19. Then you get to chapters 20 through 24, and those are the commandments, rules. And the overarching theme of that is behavior or ethics. So you have been saved, and now this is how you ought to behave once you've been saved. 
How many of you know that once we've been saved that we ought to behave a little bit differently than the way that we behaved before? Good half of you. The other half of you hit my guts because you don't want to stop acting the way you were before. So eh, that's life. Um, Number three, the third section is about the tabernacle, and that's chapters 25 through 40. Some of you get to chapter 24, and you start reading about the instructions of the tabernacle, and you just want to fast forward. But I'm just going to give you a warning. On the other side of this is Leviticus, so take your time, because that is a difficult book to read. It talks about bodily fluids, and it talks about digging a hole outside the camp to relieve yourself, and it talks about stoning people and stuff. It's a little bit tougher, so take your time with Exodus, but here we get more of a deeper sense of God's presence. And what I love about this this kind of setup is is it it speaks to us, but it also spoke to Israel. Why to Israel? Because Israel, God, was their salvation. And when they came out of slavery, God's like, I don't want you to act like slaves anymore. I want to teach you to act like free men and women, free families. I want you to learn the ethics and the behavior of how to act and respond to me and to each other. And then the biggest question was, okay, God, you brought us out and you placed this here. The question is, is are you going to keep going with us or are you going to abandon us? And I don't know about you, I've had that same question before too. God, you brought me here. Are you going to keep going or are you just going to let me go? Push me out of the nest, so to speak. Because there's so many times that I have delighted in the feeling of God's presence, but I will admit quite often, sometimes I just feel his absence. I'm the only one apparently in the room that feels that way. But sometimes we feel, and that's why we don't serve God based upon feeling. We base We base our life upon the truth of who God is, which is why we've got this third section, to remind the people of God that you may not feel God's presence, but he wants to give them the tabernacle to give them a deeper sense that his presence is not just with them, but will go with them every step of the way. And this models a paradigm for which you and I ought to be living our lives, that we come to God and we find salvation through Christ Jesus. And then from there, we learn how to live. You want to know how to live? Watch Jesus. If you want to learn how to live, learn about Jesus. You want to know how to live, how to treat humanity? Read the Gospels. Read the story of Christ. And we learn our way to live. And the beauty is, is we don't have to live and do it on our own. We can have a deeper sense of God's presence every step of the way. And I'm so thankful that when I gave my heart to Christ when I was in third grade and I raised my hand and I said my prayer and I repented of all the sins that I knew about at that point. And then when I was in high school, really rededicating my life to Christ and wanting to get baptized and wanting to be serious about my faith. I thank God that God has not just abandoned me, but the more that I have followed him, the deeper sense of his presence that I have had. And whenever I thought I got to the deepest part of God, he's he's helped me to understand that I have been living life in the shallow and there is still more to him to know. And that's why these Sunday nights that we have during this series are so key. They are to invite you into a deeper understanding and connection to the presence of God. Some of you have been asking for a worship night for a long time. Tonight is almost 100% worship. Tonight, we're gonna come forward. We're gonna gather just around the front altar. You can, you can go to your normal seats on Sundays. Some of y'all have normal seats and you need to change them up a little bit. If people are looking at you weird. Get the different seats. Uh, you, we're gonna have people kind of walking around this place. You know what's really cool is the prayer team will show up before you guys even show up and they are gonna be saturating this place in prayer so that when we walk in 
in here that there's already going to be an atmosphere of intercession in this place. And tonight we're going to worship our butts off. And most importantly, we are just going to enter into a walk through the tabernacle. We're going to dive in together tonight. So 6 to 7 o'clock, every Sunday night, just come, join us, sit back, and enjoy and dive into the deeper presence of God. But this is the great paradigm that I've been working on in my own life. Lord, I come to you. Help me to know how to act or respond to my world. And through that, help me to have a deeper sense of your presence. This is how we live. This is how we operate. Because God has not come into our life just to tweak our lives. God has not come into your life just to kind of maybe tweak your life a little bit or to tweak your language. God has not come to have behavior modification. I love behavior modification. People would love for my behavior to be modified a little bit, but I want you to understand that the presence of God has not come just to modify your behavior. He has come to transform your life. Man, we, for some reason, we have turned Jesus into an accessory. That we just attach them to our lives so we don't have to have any change. But we feel good because we have Jesus as the co-pilot in our life. But understand something. That Jesus has want to do the more than just modify your life. He wants to transform you. He wants to change you. He wants you to be in the place where you're just never the same again. And I'm here to tell you that the more that you follow Jesus, he will take you from place to place, from glory to glory. But you just got to keep sticking with him. You got to keep trusting with him. You got to lean upon him every single day. Lord, I invite you in. Help me to behave. Help me to, to live. Help me to act justly. Help me to be kind. But know this, that I can't do any of this apart from your presence. And we learn that, that this little step and these little things are become the daily prayer life of our lives. Save me. Help me. Be with me. I love what the scripture says. Let's read this. This is such good stuff here. Uh, Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they would make me a contribution, <laughs> take up an offering, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the, contri the contribution for me. Now notice, it, notice what it says. It doesn't say make them give. He wants people to have a heart of generosity. He wants you to be moved with a heart of generosity. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from the gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen, goat's hair. Please don't tithe goat's hair. I don't need it. Um, tan ram skins, goat skins. Yeah, we don't need that in the offering either. Uh, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for the setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I would dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. This is the beginning portion of the instruction of the tabernacle. The Exodus is important. The commandments are important, but 40% of this book still exists and it is actually dedicated to what we are covering over the next six weeks. Now look at this. It says this, God says, I want you to make me, make me a sanctuary. Some of your translations will say tabernacle. Others might say a tent. Make me this sanctuary for a place that I would dwell and make it exactly how I'm going to show you. 
He gives them exact instructions on how to create what they are about to create. And I would like to understand that in cultural Christianity in America, this seems like the opposite of what we see. Instead of building what God desires so that he could be the center point, we like to create our lives according to our desires and then add God on a little bit after. But God says, stop doing it centered upon you. He says, I'm gonna have you build something so that I become the centerpiece. And that centerpiece would in essence become the center of all the nation of Israel as they gathered around. Now some of you may be thinking, these are poor slaves. How in the world did they have all of this? But you would have to go back a number of chapters because when they actually left Egypt, they plundered Egypt and took with them all of the bling that they had. And they had gold, they had, the, they had the spices, all the things that they were giving were out of the riches of that which they took with them as slaves. That's how they gave. But the question then comes up, well, why does God need a tent? Why does, is he lonely? Pastor, you just talked about the Trinity for like a million weeks in a row. I thought he had community. Why is God so lonely that he needs a tent? And also, why not build a building? But you have to understand that as they're going through the wilderness, the tent would be set up and torn down. It was something that would travel until they would finally settle in the land. Because where they're at in Mount Sinai was not their final destination. There are times that God will stop you where you're at, not because he's ready for you to rest and settle. It's because he's stopping you to do a work in you to continue in the journey ahead of you. He says, the reason for the tent, chapter 29, verse number 45 to 46, if you could put that on the screen, it'll save me from flipping the pages. It says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them, for I am the Lord their God. Look at this. This is the reason why he built it, that they will, he will dwell with them, that they will know that I am their God, they shall know who I am who brought them out of Egypt. Understand this, put that tent back up for me, put the tabernacle back up. God did not need this tabernacle. God didn't necessarily need a place to rest. Israel required the structure. Why? They needed something visible to let them know the one who brought them out is still with them and will continue to bring them through whatever they face on their journey. This is why this was provided. This is something that helped restore a catastrophe that took place hundreds of years before that we read about in the book of Genesis. In his book um, called The Echoes of Exodus, Brian Estelle says this, why is all of this important? Because it indicates that the creation of the beginning of time is a sacred space. Just as the tabernacle and the temple were later recognized to be spaces of sacred presence, the divine pre presence lost in Eden becomes the central catastrophe of the biblical drama. The building of the tabernacle according to a model as God's presence or dwelling in the midst of his people at least partially resolves the problem. God was providing something that had been lost in the book of Genesis. God did not lose it, humanity lost connection. A sacred space was sacrificed because of sin. And this, in a temporary setting, 
was going to be an answer to the prayer and the need of the catastrophe that took place. The people were to create a space to become a sacred space so that they themselves would actually become a sacred space. Let me say that again. The tabernacle, the people were to create a space to be a special space so that they themselves would become a sacred space. That's something that is the heart of this whole series. They created something simple so that it would become something special because God's intention was that the tabernacle would not be the end all because there was a plan one day where that would go from a tent to a building and then a building on the day of Pentecost to a church, the church being us. He was restoring something lost since Eden. So a couple of things that I wanna to observe today is number one, the tabernacle is a pathway of God's presence. The tabernacle is a pathway of God's presence. God was saying, I want to be with you, but I want to give you some instructions. Some of us love to give God instructions and then tell God to be with us. But God is saying, I want to be with you, so here's instructions. And what I love is the response of Israel was to give. Their activity of not just giving in an offering, but actually being involved in the ministry of all of that stuff coming together, actually said to God, it was more than God saying, I want to be with you. They said, we want God to be with us. And that's when I look at when you guys get involved in ministry, when you guys begin to form tables that for people to gather around, when you guys join teams, what you are saying is we are giving of our time or our abilities because yes, we want, we know that God wants to be with us, but we want to be with God. And when we begin to work amongst each other, encourage and minister one to each other, the spirit of God is there with us. And so when we begin to put the gospel into practice, we begin to reach out to people, when we give in the offering, when we give of our lives, something beautiful takes place because God does want to work amongst us. But did you not hear what Pastor Matt told you? There's something about when we begin to reach out and minister one to another. There's some people that are praying for an encouraging word. And when we launch out and give somebody that word, we work in tandem with God and God meets with us. This was the tabernacle. This was the pathway. And for some of you, you got to understand that your lives can be tabernacles, pathways for people to experience the presence of God. And the way that we get involved is actually to simply give and get involved. It's for us to get our hands dirty and begin to partake of the presence so that when we go from the presence of God after pursuing him, wherever we go, we can carry the presence of God with us. I gave you kind of the, the, the step-by-step. We had Eden, we had the tabernacle, we had temple, and we have the church. See, the tabernacle was not just a pathway that showed us a way to the presence of God. Because you start off with the gate and you work toward the middle of the tabernacle where God's presence was, but it wasn't just a pathway, but it was part of a pathway. God met humanity in Eden. Man screwed up. Then God gives his presence in a tabernacle. And when they settled in the land of promise, there Solomon, 500 years later, Solomon builds, he erects a ginormous, gorgeous uh, temple. That temple is where the presence of God had rusted. 
And then when the temple was destroyed, people would say, what about, we need a new temple. We need a new temple. But that's the beauty is God provided a new temple because on the day of Pentecost, God outpoured his spirit upon humanity and we've got the church. And that's why when we look at scripture specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says this, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that you are the modern day tabernacle? You are the modern day temple. Where's the spirit of God? If you've given your life to Christ, he's here. He's in you. He is with you. And we are here to be pathways to the presence of God. And that's why we didn't need to do more than just invite people to church. And listen, I want you to invite your friends to church, but I want you to invite Jesus to your work. I want you to invite Jesus into your neighborhoods. I want you to invite Jesus into the marketplace because just as much as the temple was a pathway to the presence, your life as temples, your life as tabernacles become part of the pathway for people to experience the presence. Number two, the tabernacle was an invitation to holiness. The tabernacle is not just a pathway to the presence of God. It was also an invitation to the holiness of God. Holiness is a funky thing because there's so many different definitions of holiness. Growing up in a very much a conservative Pentecostal atmosphere, holiness for us was not going to the movies. We could rent movies, we couldn't go to the movies. Not sure why that worked out. Uh, holiness for my grandmother was, you cannot play with dice because it will lead to gambling. I'm just playing Monopoly. I will make you flashcards. I'm like, oh, that stinks. For my grandmother, holiness wasn't roller skating. Holiness wasn't listening to, to secular music. Holiness wasn't uh, acting like the world or dressing like the world. I mean, we can go through numbers of things what holiness were, but let me, let me just give you a thought that I've been working on this whole week. Something holiness is about what we get rid of. I submit holiness begins with who we invite in. Holiness is the invitation of the one the scripture says is the holiness of God, it is Jesus. And some of us are trying to get rid of things to be more holy, but I would, I would su submit to you, just because you got rid of things doesn't mean that holiness has come on in. It just means you don't do stuff anymore. Holiness is the invitation of Christ. And once we invite Christ, we allow Christ to do the work of whatever it is that Christ wants to do, which means there may be some things the Spirit of God is going to challenge you to do or not do that other people can do. The goal isn't to try to look like each other. The goal is to look like Jesus and be submitted to the person and the work of Jesus because the goal isn't doing without. The goal is the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Holiness isn't the presence of rules. It is in the lordship of Jesus. It is all about giving our lives to him. And the tabernacle was the invitation to say, come and just be a part of, what I'm, of who I am. Because I want to be a part of who you are. There's a gentleman named Ralph Otto who wrote a book called The Idea of Holy. And the way he describes holiness is with a Latin phrase. He says, the one who is holy is mysterium tremendum escafascanans. I've been practicing my Latin all week. Mysterium tremendum escafascanans. Translated means the one who is holy 
is a mystery that causes trembling and fascination. God is mysterious. He is not like us. He is not finite like us. And so there are some aspects of God we will never fully get or understand because he's mysterion. He is a mystery. There are depths to him. That's why it takes a lifetime to understand God and we'll stand in heaven realizing we barely scratch the surface of who he is. It is not just mysterious. He is a tremendum. He is, he is, it makes you tremble. The approaching God made, made Moses just slip off his shoes because, man, he just trembled before the presence of Almighty God. But yet, before somebody who is, makes you tremble, we have foskanons. That word means fascinates. What, what this truly means in the Latin, he draws you in because he's so fascinating. He is mysterious. And yet it causes me to bow and to lift my hands. And at the same time, it causes me to lift my head and be fascinated by his presence and to begin to pursue. And that's why approaching the tabernacle, we get such a great revelation of God just in the original look of the tabernacle. Put that picture up if you would. This is what is so awesome because what you see in the very beginning, the only thing we're going to cover today is the gates. And the gates are actually signified by a tricolored curtain looking different than everything else. And this curtain would have spoken those words, mysterium, tremendum, ephesgasinat, where that curtain spoke of mystery, trembling, and fascination. Why? Because of the three colors represented on that. This was the doorway to the presence of God. This was the doorway to pursue God. And those colors are so fascinating. Let me tell you why. The blue represents the grace of God. The crimson represents the redemptive power of God. And the purple represents the majesty of God. We've got mystery, trembling, and fascination. And the only way to approach God is to recognizing we can't approach him if it were not for his grace. We couldn't approach God if we weren't redeemed. We couldn't approach God unless his majesty allowed it. And so immediately this, little, this simple approach completely transforms the, uh, the, the approach to who he is, the holiness, the grace, and the majesty of God. And this door stands out specifically because it is what ushers us in. Why is that so significant? Significant, I'm glad you've asked me that question because Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. Nobody approaches God through the door. So when you see the, G, when you see the door, you see the blue, the grace, the crimson, the redemptive power, and the purple, and the majesty. Honestly, you see Jesus in John chapter 10 that says, you want to get to God. You want to get to the holiness. You want to get to the presence. I am the door. I am the gate of the tabernacle. I am the place that you enter in. I am the one that has come. You see, the tabernacle is a place where humanity and divinity met. But I want you to understand something. Jesus is our tabernacle. He is the place where humanity and divinity met. And he is the place for which we get to meet divinity and to encounter the presence of God. I love what John says, John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have your Bible, circle the word dwelt. You want to know what that word would have meant in the, in the Hebrew translation of the New Testament? That word dwelt is translated into Hebrew, tabernacle. The word became real, flesh, and he tabernacled among us. He came close to us. And because he came close to us, 
Think of the, those colors, the grace, the redemptive power, the majesty of God. Because of that, we can get close to God. Hebrews chapter four, chapter four tells us that we can approach the throne of grace and receive mercy in our time of need. And we don't have to do it with our heads bowed. We can do it with what? Confidence. He is that faskanans, that fascination, and that confidence of approaching him, knowing that he will not turn us away. I love what the scripture says, because when we approach the gates, um, Psalm chapter 100, I got a little nervous, and Pastor Matt said Psalm 100 today, but Psalm 100, 100 verse 4 says that we will enter the gates with what? Thanksgiving, and enter into the courts with? Okay, go back to that, go back to that illustration. Go back to our, our, our little picture of the tabernacle here. You are entering gates with thanksgiving. On the other side of the gate that we will dive into next week is the courts. The people in a day could only send the priest in. And at some point when he got to the inner chamber, only one could go in. But because of the work, the redemptive work, the majesty work, the grace work of Jesus Christ, that we don't have to cower before God like some people will tell you, like some preachers will tell you, that we can walk in, we can hold up our heads at the mystery, the trembling, and also the, the, the fascinating work of God, and we can go in with thanksgiving because of what Jesus did, and we can walk into the courts and lift up our hands and pray and say, man, we get to be with God. We get to visit with the Most High. We get to have this personal connection and no, no lamb has to be slaughtered. You know why? Because 2,000 years ago, a lamb was laid down before the foundation of the world and he came out of the tomb alive. And so now he's made a way for us to go into the presence of God with thanksgiving and with praise. And that's why we're, that's why we're doing this tonight. Tonight is all about the gate. We're going forward with praise. Tonight, we're entering into the gates with thanksgiving and into the courts with praise. And we are gonna echo into our weeks ahead a mode of thanksgiving and praise. Jesus is our doorway. Jesus is our path. I love, somebody said this before. I don't know who said it. It was not tagged on as who was the original writer. So I'm just gonna say I made it up. When you enter God's presence with praise, he enters your circumstances with power. I've heard this for years through the church, but I'm just gonna say, hey, Dave Berenger made this up. There's something very real about this entering, entry moment of the tabernacle is getting to this place where we can recognize that when we enter with praise, when we start off with praise, when we respond in worship, Immediately, whatever that we have been dealing with, carrying, or going with, all of a sudden gets impacted with the presence of God. Because honestly, when I feel like when I lift up my hands, I love lifting up my hands in worship. There's something about responding to God is to me almost releasing that which I have been holding on to just so I can embrace all of who He is. And that thing that I have been carrying now honestly just sits at my feet so I can just hold on to everything that He is. When we enter into God's presence with praise, He enters our circumstances with power. And so my challenge today for you is to create a sacred space. That's the title of my message. Is would you just create sacred space? Every, every Sunday night at six o'clock, this is going to be our sacred space to come together to pray and to worship. I'm gonna challenge you in the coming uh, days ahead, Monday, Tuesday, all the way through Saturday. Would you, would you just take five minutes a day 
just to create some sacred space between you and God. Open up your scriptures. Play some worship music. Get something that just engage in the presence of God. I'm going to invite you every single Tuesday during this entire season. I'm going to be fasting over our church every single Tuesday at lunch. Take that lunch time. I'm going to be fasting at my lunch time every Tuesday. Would you take that time that you would use for lunch on Tuesdays and just create some sacred space and call out to God on behalf of our community, on behalf of the city that you're living in. Call out on behalf of your church community. Call out on behalf of our vision for putting a church in Paw Paw, Michigan. Begin to call out on behalf of, of the marriages of our church and the people of our church. Would you help me create sacred space on, by fasting with me on Tuesday afternoons? Would you create sacred space as a couple? Maybe before you go to bed at night, pray together. Create sacred space with you and your kids before they go to bed say hey we're just going to gather during this season and just pray before everybody goes to bed and just create sacred space because there's just something about taking that creativity taking the initiative to meet with God that will do absolutely healing majestic things in your life last thing I want to say and then we're going to invite the worship team to lead us the tabernacle was a pathway to a presence the tabernacle was an invitation to, to Holiness, and thirdly, the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a gift of healing. It was a healing gift. And I was doing some reading, and I had read this particular thing that I thought was so fascinating to me. Researchers in the field of art therapy had discovered that traumatic experiences are stored in the amygdala part of the brain that does not use language and it's often referred to as the, prim the primitive or the reptile brain. And they have learned that what a person, that when a person has experienced severe trauma and they get involved in the arts, such as painting, singing, dancing, writing, drama, that the painful memories can surface and healing can take place. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why God instructed his people to make a tabernacle. 400 years of slavery, 10 plagues, the most powerful army in that known world pursued them. You want to talk about PTSD and trauma in their life? All they knew was live, lives that said, you're nothing more than a slave. And the first thing that God has them actually do is to create something, to give to create, to partner with him. And we, we've got, a, I don't know if you realize this, we've got a, a counselor that works out of our church right now. So if you're looking to hire a counselor and to invest in your own mental and emotional health, we've got a great lead. And this is what she taught me. The amygdala part of the brain is right here in the middle. And sometimes when there is trauma, when there are things that have happened, it grows so tense and it causes, it, it just causes pain. There's agony that just takes place within your life, inner hurt. But when you begin to get active, it releases the tension on the inside so that healing can take place. Imagine what would happen if we started creating sacred space around us, like the children of Israel beginning to create tabernacle, a place for God to exist. What would happen if we stopped holding on to unforgiveness and we started creating opportunities with somebody so that we can usher in forgiveness? What would happen in our healing 
If we would begin to let go of some idiosyncrasies we had with somebody of a different color, a different nation, a different background, a different economic status, what if we dealt with those images and things that maybe we were handed by creating a sacred space between us and somebody that is not like us? What would happen if we stop categorizing worldly people as worldly and we begin to say they have potential for being a sacred space and we got rid of our, our Christianese and we started talking like normal people and integrating with them a little bit and beginning to exercise creative connections so that they can taste and see how good God is. Imagine the healing of our brain by creating a sacred space and it's gonna take some giving. I'm not just talking about the offering, but we could throw offering in there. But for some of you, it's getting involved in ministry. For some of you, it's giving of time to, to a situation. For some of you, it's giving of a talent. Some, and I understand some of you have been hurt. You've been hurt by, by a church. I've been hurt by a church. You've been hurt by a pastor. I've been hurt by a pastor. We all can load up all of our hurts. Perhaps God has created your brain in such a way that you might be the answer to the prayer that you've been asking. God healed me of some of my past. And I believe he's ready to do that through you by telling you to begin to step out in obedience and begin to create sacred space.